Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. We're kicking off 2021 with another legend of commercial real estate here in DFW, Michael Dardick, who is founding partner and chief executive officer of Granite Properties. Since its founding in 1991, Granite has acquired or developed more than 27 million square feet of commercial space and has offices in Atlanta, Dallas, Denver, Houston, and Los Angeles. Michael talks with our former chairman, Bill Cauley of Cauley Partners, about transitioning to commercial real estate from the banking world, his thoughts on team building and relationships, and how the industry will recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. This is the third episode of our Legends of Commercial Real Estate series. You can listen to our previous interviews with Jeff Swope of Champion Partners and Michelle Wheeler of Jackson Shaw wherever you download podcasts. Make sure you're following Trek on social media as well for the latest news and updates from around the organization. We've linked to all of our handles in the show notes for this episode. Now, here's Michael Dardick, a legend in commercial real estate, right here on TrackCast. All right, Mike. Um, one of the things that I'm looking forward to is, first of all, I consider you a very good friend. I mean, uh, I've always admired what you've accomplished in, in real estate, but more or less, more than that, I mean, uh, I really value our friendship. I think uh, over the years since we got involved with Children's Hospital in Plano, I just feel like you're you're a really good friend. I, I use you as kind of a sounding block, and um, I just appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, and right back at you. It's been a blast. Uh, we've known each other probably 20 years, but I'm like you. I feel like the last 10, we've gotten close, and it's been great. Yeah. So... Tell everybody, like, how did you get into real estate and, and why? So uh, I was a finance guy in college. And so when you're a finance guy, you go to work at a bank. Um, it really was never about, I thought I wanted to be in banking, but I did think it would be, I'd learn a lot because when, back when we came out of school, you know, you didn't even know what business is, even though you had a business degree. So I went to work at a bank, uh, Interfirst Bank, for those of you that are over the age of 50. Wow. If you don't, you can go Google it. Anyway, um, it was fantastic because they had a management training program where we rotated every 90 days through a different lending group. And I rotated through real estate and fell in love with it. I'd never been exposed to real estate. Don't admit it, my family's not related to it, but I just loved it. And, um, and then I actually got hired by one of my clients and left. I was at the bank about three years. Great experience, by the way, I tell young people all the time, I was spoiled. I had a big company that trained me in a lot of just business ways and professionalism. And I also made a great network of people in the real estate business that to this day I'm friends with and do business with. And so like when you took your first job as in the banking business, you had no thought or desire for real estate until you had gone through the process of rotating. Totally. I was just getting into the business world, trying to figure out what it meant and find my way. Uh, my dad was a depression era guy, didn't get to go to college. He was a salesman who made his way up through, he had a great manufacturing company that built chairs and tables, but he wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a dad that grew up in corporate America. And so I, he's very entrepreneurial. So I definitely feel like I was, I was lucky I got to see that. But so I, no, I didn't know anything about real estate until I got to the bank. You know, and this is kind of weird for me to say this because I, as well as I know you, but so was, where, where was your first job in real estate? Was it Granite? No, no, no. Um, oh, so <laughs> give me, give me the, tell me first and to, to kind of current. 
Uh, well, so uh, one of my clients was um, Blackland Properties, which is related to the Stevie family. Sure. And uh, actually, in a, it's funny how the world goes in circles. Uh, they owned all of the West End Historic District. Right. So I was a lender to them on several of those buildings. Actually, the West End Marketplace, I was a lender on, which, as you know, we ended up buying and redoing into Factory 603. Wow. Weird, weird 30-year-later story. Right. Um, anyway, uh, there was a couple guys associated with them, and we were going to do festival retail marketplaces across the country like they had done there at West End Marketplace. And we had a property in Atlanta, the Virginia Hollins uh, Trolley Barn. And uh, I went over there in 86, and the world blew up in 87. Right. And so that whole thing got put on hold. And what was interesting, Bill, you'll laugh at this, because you're I, I, I think you're literally the greatest salesman I possibly know. Um, they, they, this is when you're young and dumb. They said to me, hey, we really want you to come over. You're awesome. We want you to be our finance guy, but we can't afford to pay you anything. And I, and I was so young and dumb. I was like, oh, okay, well, how do we deal with that? And they're like, well, we created this joint venture with this company called Kennedy Wilson out of California, which at the time was Austin Marketing Company. Okay. Sure. And they said, you just need to go do some deals with them and figure out how to pay for yourself on the side while we're doing this. And you know, it's like young and dumb. I was like, okay, that's great. <laughs> so, so I ended up doing that and, uh, you know, kind of selling some deals through them to pay my way. And then the market turned and it was clear that it was just wasn't going to be a long-term thing. And because of the market crash, again, remember I told you I made some great relationships at Interfirst Bank and the real estate right. well, One of them called me, they were over at Texas Commerce Bank and said, hey, we need to start a foreclosed real estate group. This thing's getting bad. You know, do you want to talk to us? And, and I literally said to them, hey, I'm happy to come in and be a real estate mutt. I don't want to be a banker. So if I can do real estate inside the bank, I'm happy to do that. And uh, thankfully, I got to do that. And so I went over there and we grew my department effectively, which was taking back foreclosed real estate. And then my job was to have a team that asset management ran it and then sold it, right? Because we didn't want to be in the business. It was, really was, was there value creation in there or were they just trying to get you to manage it and get rid of it? Uh, there was a little bit of value creation. Yeah. I mean, that was where, look, I'm an entrepreneurial guy. And so right. I, I would tell the bank, hey, let's not sell this for $10. Let's go spend $5 and we sell it for 20 Perfect. And I, I was really lucky again. I had a super boss and, and the CEO at the time was John Adams who just kind of let us do our thing. And, and thankfully, because I was really a mutt, they didn't know what we did over there because they didn't want to be in that business. Right. I kind of got to do what we, I could do things with just my boss. I didn't have to go to committees. And Which so awesome. he, he was great. He's a friend to this day. Taught me a lot. It was my first job, like growing an apartment and hiring people and managing people. Had a lot of interesting people because we were, you know, we had real estate people who were hiring inside the bank. It, it was it was great, and so well, and you were meeting a lot of your you're probably dealing with a lot of your friends, right? That had issues. Uh, totally. Uh, although yeah. I was young, I, I always like to say that that recession, I got a free pass. I got to watch it. There are later ones that I have tattoos from that I didn't get to watch. I had to just, right, right. But, uh, it was it was great, and and what it set up for me is as as we were kind of getting out of the business, I think you know maybe they wanted me to participate in going back into banking in some way or shape, but that really wasn't what I wanted. So I do think I had a good seat to see this is back in 90. Right. That, wow. This may be an opportunity to get on the other side of the business and get back out. Right. And that, well, that's, 
that's where we see where people made mistakes too, right? Yeah, and that's where we started Granite Properties in 91. 91, okay, so let me ask you this. Did you ever look back at the time you were at the bank and took that stuff back and see how you protected the bank on their, on their balances from it, assets taken back and what they sold for? Yeah, and, and honestly, I was still young and dumb. And so yeah, okay. I was, I was doing things that, that worked, but I shouldn't have taken the risk to do them. I'll never forget, we had like a 24-unit townhome project. And there was some guy from New York who was buying it for like, I don't know, a million five or something, right? And I told the guy, um, I'm just telling you right now, if you don't go hard on Friday, which is your date, on Monday, I'm raising the price. You know, and I, I was like young and dumb, like, what, right? And, and uh, the guy didn't go hard, and he called me on Monday, and I said, it's 100000 more. And he said, come on, man, I'm ready to go hard this day. You know, what, what's the big deal? And I said, I told you on Friday, it's going to be more. And I was lucky that my boss let me play that game. We got 100000 more. We got 100000 more. But it, awesome. it wasn't, my point is, I mean, that sounds great. It was really stupid. It was young and dumb. It, the bank had other, you know, ideas and I, I was lucky that they let me get away with doing some of that stuff. Okay, so since you've been on the deal side, since we're talking about taking stuff back, what what was your toughest deal? And what did you learn from it? Um, so so uh, there's a couple ways to answer this because tough doesn't mean bad. Although- you Right, know, no, I agree. I right, it can brain, work out, I agree. The brain goes to bad when you say tough, so- right. I'm going to use one tough one that wasn't bad. It turned out fantastic. But we did a, a, a large retail venture with four shopping, five shopping centers in four different states. And um, it was a life insurance company that wanted, they owned it all equity. And a new CEO had come in and they wanted to get out of the equity business in real estate. But they didn't want to run off. They had like $5 billion of equity real estate. They didn't want to run the assets off. So they wanted to do highly levered participation, participating debt so they could keep the assets. Mm -hmm. But Trammell Crow brought the deal to us at the time and they wanted to be the developer partner and we would be the capital. And it was a fascinating deal because you had three parties in the room that all had slightly different things they wanted to get done. Different motives, so right? It was a very highly structured deal, really complicated deal with all these waterfalls and buckets. I mean, it's almost like, you know, when you got to start drawing pictures in a deal, you, you've overcomplicated it. And For me it is, yeah. Th th this was one of those, but honestly, it ended up, you know, working out fantastically for all three parties. And so it was a very tough deal to put together, but I will tell you in hindsight, and I learned this at the bank, just because the deal worked didn't mean you structured it right. You know, the market could be great and your structure just worked out. And, and right. I do think we structured it right, but it was also a great market. Right. Um, a more recent deal, I mean, we've been, I think you know this, we've been working on this entitlement deal in Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, we have been under contract on an old jail uh, in the middle of Cambridge from the state. And, uh, you know, we haven't done a lot of work in the Northeast and that entitlement process is completely different. And it's been eight years, you know. Eight years? Eight I years. That long. We just got entitlements last fall. And literally, it went to the state Supreme Court. That's how, how much we got sued. It was really a crazy thing. And uh, the state owned the, the building that we're buying, but the garage is owned by the city. So we got through this eight years of entitlement, all, all the time knowing we have to have parking. And by the way, that garage was built for this building. It was just owned by different entities. 
Well, then, you know, we get done with that feeling like we're done. And then the city decides they're going to take their pound of flesh, right? It's just how they work up there. And we spent, you know, another year and a half. And it, it was it was silly stuff, Bill. I mean, it, it's funny. Being in Texas, you don't realize how fortunate we are that I like to say the way you entitle stuff is you bring your gun out, you go down to the courthouse, you shoot somebody, and you got <laughs> and but but honestly, they, they literally the stuff we would deal with, and it's just funny, it's why it made it tough for us because we weren't set up for these kind of negotiations. There was it by the way, this building was built 60 years ago, okay? So do you own did you buy it or is it subject to entitlements? Have you it been tied up option, for eight years? It was an option subject to entitlements that we closed last fall. And uh but for eight years, it was just under option. But, but to give you a point, the 22-story tower that one of the lawsuits we had was from a neighbor that said, I don't like the shadows on my house. And we're like, like those shadows were there when you bought your house. Like, I don't even understand how this is a conversation. Right. And, and, and yet, listen to them. we had to negotiate to take two floors off a 22-story building because they didn't like the shadows. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. Okay. And, now, and let me ask you one other question. So you had that under option for eight years. Did the price change any over eight years? Greatest structure we've ever done. So you bought it, you closing to last year at an eight-year-old price. No carry. No oh anything. my gosh. Uh, but, but, Bill, we spent, we spent a right. lot of money on legal, no. we spent a lot of money on architectural, and we didn't know we would get home. Gotcha. So it wasn't, it was, so that was a different tough because we were, we were in a place we weren't used to, doing entitlements we weren't used to, and it was really, really frustrating. Wow. Okay. So how about, does a bad one come to mind? One that just kind of was a mess, not one that was tough and worked out, but one that didn't work out and what you learned? For sure. Yeah. Uh, I've got a few of those myself. We did it. We did a very large venture and I want to be careful here about, because I don't want to uh, get into who and what, but we did a very large venture in another product type uh, with a uh, company that had done a lot of that business. And it was a very financially structured, geared, like too much leverage kind of deal. And, and it was large. We did a lot. We did a lot. And um, there, there were two big, big mistakes that I learned from. Number one is literally before we were closing the deal, I made the comment, wow, this thing is so financially geared. I feel like this is a Maserati or driving down the freeway. And if you just get a little pebble in the rocks, it's going to spin out. It's going to be a big problem. Like I made that comment before we closed, like should have been messaged to self. If you're thinking about this, why, why are you doing it? Right. Why are you doing it? And then, and then, um, and this is a little bit of a different learning lesson is that, uh, there, there were several kind of leaders involved in that venture. And, um, I don't think I realized as much that one of them was the glue and that person went away in the middle of the deal and everything, turned out different because the glue wasn't there. Got it. And, and the lesson, and you and I know this is, uh, there's a saying I have that's been learned because of tattoos I have on my back from bad deals, right. is that uh, good partners highly likely can survive bad deals. Bad partners can't even survive good deals. Right. And so it's all about the people, right? The people statement. And you and I know that, but sometimes you got to get tattooed to learn that. You think you're going to make money on a deal and you kind of look past that. Right. Okay, and so tell me about like, uh, you have built an incredible team there. And so, I mean, one, you've done a great job of finding quality people and keeping them long-term. I mean, I, 
I think one of the hardest things in business is, is one, finding somebody that is talented to add to your team, but continuing to motivate them and keeping them long-term. Like what's your, like your uh, uh, outlook on business and your approach and your thoughts about building a team and keeping quality people? Um, well, I, I think I would start with, uh, I wish I could show this to you. My, my dad, you know, you can learn a lot from a depression era guy that wasn't educated. And he had a little slide on his, you know, board behind his desk. that simply said, people are important. It's right. And, and it sounds so stupid, simple. Uh, but at the end of the day, we always say around here, we're actually in the people business. We just happen to execute in the real estate world. Right. And, um, so, I mean, I think the theory is I, I'm, a, I, I'm a people person. I love being around people. I love relationships. And um, I'm kind of wired this way. And so I feel this way about others. I think human animal has amazing potential. Right. And it, even more, and, and I use marathons as a great example or triathlons to kind of prove the point to just draw a picture. You know, most people don't believe they can push themselves to that level of physical thing, but the human animal can do it. It's a right. mental thing you got to get through. And right. so if you, if you extrapolate that to the business world, you know, I always tell people the best days I ever have at the office is when somebody in our office didn't believe they could accomplish something. And somehow you gave them the motivation and belief they could. And when they do to see the look on their face, when they actually get it, right. and that's the greatest day I ever had at the office is when somebody is proud of what they did. And it maybe was something they didn't believe they could do. Right. Because once they do that, it's a whole new reset. They never look right. back. Right. They right. go to the next place. I agree. You know, I, I do think for me, like with my kids, it's all about drive or grit, you know, determination. I mean, I will take a street fighter over uh, highly educated. I mean, I, if somebody, you know, somebody that's that's driven to 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 do more, because most of it is like you said, you're betting on people. But it's also you got to have somebody that's got the talent that wants to push themselves to excel, right? Yeah, yeah, or, or accepts being pushed. Even if they didn't want to push themselves, if they get bit by that bug, right. you know, if, you, if you show them that, yeah, I'm gonna push you and they do something, they get excited about that. Right. Um, I will tell you, I think the hardest thing for me, and I think this is hard for all leaders, you know, uh, you can't use the same hammer on every nail. And so everybody's different, and just because you know, Tommy or Sally may be wired a certain way and either respond to the tough coach or the gentle coach. Yeah. You've got to, you know, it's your job as a leader to adapt to the person. And that's hard when you have a certain personality. Right. Right. I, I think. I, well, yeah, no, I completely agree. And I, I think one of the things like you lead such a big company. I mean, do you have any kind of philosophies on leading your company and what, what you think a good leader should do or, or how they should act? Um, I don't, I don't know if I have any big philosophies. I do have some things I, I adhere to. Uh, one is that, uh, I tell our people all the time, I, I do not think it's the leader's job to have the answer. I think it's the leader's job to get the answer. And those are two different things. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I tell them all the time, I refuse for you to believe I'm going to walk around like the king and have all the answers. I absolutely refuse that. What I will, what I will do is I'll listen to everybody else and make the, make the decision right? Which means I'm going to go get the answer and you may have a better answer than me. And great. We found it there. I like that one. Right. Um, the, the, the second picture I like to draw for our teams is I refuse to be the think, think for you to think the picture is 
I've got a rope over my back with a wheelbarrow and I'm going to carry people up a hill. The picture I like is you guys are running down the hill and I'm having to figure out how to run as fast as I can to stay in front of you. You know, right. so in other words, you should be pushing us versus somebody pulling you. And, um, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like, what about, uh, well, you've got offices across the country. I mean, is there anything like leading people that, you, you know, how often do you get to other offices? I mean, do you, del are you a good delegator? I think you probably are, right? Because you've got a really good team, but what's your view on that? I, I think I've gotten better. I, I would say, uh, you know, 15 years ago, you know, you're probably like me. I think I'm right most of the time. Right. And so, you know, uh, you know, you have to learn to trust other people and realize that they're probably actually better than you and you just need to get out of the way. So mm -hmm. that definitely took a while. I think I'm much better at it now. And some of it is we have a phenomenal team, so it's easy to trust them um, and realize they're doing better things than you might do on your own. I love getting our other offices. I love meeting with our teams. I do it all the time. I, I learn from them. I get a good pulse on what's happening in the company, what people are thinking about. And it's amazing the little comments somebody will make somewhere that are like, wow, like that's actually a big comment I didn't think about, right? Something right. relative to the business. Right. Um, but, you know, your job as a leader is to grow other leaders, right? And so that you don't have to be in the way um, and, and realizing they, they may be better than you and you actually need to get out of their way. Right. And so like COVID, right? COVID hits in March, you know, and like we, we're always sitting here, when's the cycle going to be over? You know, we're always worried about where the right cross is coming, you know? And I know you have a longer view than most developers because of the way you're structured with your capital that you hold assets long-term and you probably have the most stable capital relationship of anybody I know. I, I've always envied that uh, being on the other side, but so you got COVID. So how do you lead through that? I mean, like all the unknowns, anything you've learned from COVID, I, I've got a couple that, I, that have cha I've changed on Outlook and I was wondering if COVID kind of affected you anyway. Uh, what? I'd love to hear what your couple are. Okay. I found that the slowdown, the first 90, 120 days when we were kind of all at home, I actually enjoyed the slower pace. Like I, I am one that loves to run from one. I create fires so I can go put them out or go build another one. And, and I think I've found that I enjoy balance more than I thought I would. And I think you and I have talked about it. I've always been one that said, I don't think I could ever quit working. I mean, I might be able to work less, but I could never just go play golf because golf isn't as much fun as work. But I think I've learned that I want more balance in my life because I do want to, as I get older, live as well as enjoy business. And I yeah. wonder if you had any of those kind of moments. Well, I'll, I'll talk more of the, the business. I agree with you on the personal stuff, but I'll talk more of the business stuff. And it actually does go back to a little bit about your question about leadership, which is, look, man, I, I tell people all the time, we're all human beings. You know, we all take our pants off and go to the bathroom the exact same way. So we can right. think we've got these organizational structures and titles and bureaucracies, right. but we're all human beings. Right. And so I, I think it's important as a leader, and this really mattered in COVID, to be very real. And so, um, and to be very open and, and to be authentic and vulnerable. And I know there's a like cool titles and leadership books now, but it, to me, it's just like being a person. 
versus yeah. trying to be a, I'm Michael right. Dart. I'm not CEO. I'm Michael Dardick, right? That's a person. Exactly. And, and, and people, the title can actually get in the way for a lot of people. And so, um, you know, look, man, when COVID hit, you know, I was doing videos to our team saying, hey, this sucks. This is scary. So being realistic, but then saying, we're going to get through this, right? I'm, I'm not, we will all get through this on the other side. So I, I would tell you, but I, part of my leadership is I think I'm an optimistic realist. And so I start with reality. I don't run from a problem and identifying the problem. I then move to, okay, how are we going to go do something positive in light of that problem? Right. And so, you know, that's kind of my, throughout COVID, I thought it was really important to stay connected, be honest about what we don't know. Still talking about that today with our teams about, you know, the future office, like what don't we know? And then we pretty good, pretty quickly go to, while we don't know this, We've got lots of people that have been, you know, networking and reading and learning and talking to our customers. And here's what we believe. Right. Here's the direction we're going to head. And by the way, if we're wrong, we'll adapt. Right. And how did you handle if you had tenants that had stress or distress because of COVID? My guess would be you would be very relational with your tenants. For sure. Yeah. You know, look, it's uh, we immediately anybody that wanted to talk to us about they had problems and they needed help, uh, we were pretty much, hey, we're certainly gonna help you, but you guys understand we're fiduciary for capital, so let's have an adult relationship. Like, we right. need information from you, we need honesty, and yes, we'll help you. And yeah. honest, Bill, what it got down to, and you're like us, you know, we're largely in class A office buildings, most of our businesses really did not have problems, and, and there was only a handful in each city. Now, our restaurants, like at Granite yeah. Park, we have a bunch of restaurants, that was Katie bar the door. We need to totally be on the ground with you guys helping out. This is a problem. And have you lost any? I mean, did they all make it? Uh, they're all in business. Right. You know, but I could say it's this about the it's business anytime, you know. Uh, right. I think most of them, uh, we, we have been working on a bridge to the future with them because at the end of the day, it's amenity to our park. And so right. we want to help them. Right. And so, like, one of the questions they've got that I'm supposed to ask you is uh, failure. Do you ever worry about failure? Have you, you know, I, I, I don't fear failure as much as I've always learned from it. I think pain or distress creates indelible experiences that, that, that form you, that mold you, right? I think it makes you better. But, I mean... Everybody looks at you and probably thinks, you know, it's just been a cakewalk to where you're at. But do you think about failure or how is failure, if uh, the ones, the few you've had affected your approach to business and maybe your life? So first of all, you're counting about indelible impressions. My, my word was tattoos. You right, know, you exactly. Know, I've got Scars. them all over and they're not, they're not going to leave me, right? I want those tattoos. because Right, you don't want to forget. I don't, you know, for sure I failed a ton, Bill, more than a couple times. Um, you know, what we talk about around here is, uh, number one, try not to have a catastrophic failure. Right. We can live with lots of failures, just don't have a catastrophic one. The flesh wounds are okay, right? You can survive yeah, them. And then, and then make sure you're willing to uh, be vulnerable enough to really learn the lesson. Because then, it, then it's not really a failure. It's, it's going to create... We think about those, you know, flesh wounds, as you call them, and, and say, if we stop and learn, we're probably going to c- create four acts from that learning that we did from that failure, and it's going to actually be a net win. 
And right. nobody likes to go through the pain of difficult conversations with partners or losing money, and we've all been there. Um, but again, if it's not catastrophic, if you can get past it, um, right. I don't, you know, I, I would say that I, I think I'm just lucky the way I was born and wired that um, I, I kind of get a stomach ache from problems, and that's a motivator to me. Right. When I get a stomach ache, it's like, hey, man, you got to get in the game and get focused here. Right. Um, and and it's, I'm, I'm competitive, so it like makes me say, okay, how do you make this work? It may, may still be a failure. One of the things we talk about all the time over here, Bill, is losing less money is making money. Exactly. Right? Well, and don't you think first loss or, or I think you need to be um, timely in your reaction. I mean, if there's a fire under the couch, go put the fire out and then let's figure out how we fix the damage, right? Don't let the fire burn while you're trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think I've been lucky to be able to mentally reframe failures as uh, learning opportunities, challenges, competitive. How do you make it least less worse? Right. Um, and and so I, I wouldn't say that I've been overly damaged by failures, even though I've had lots of them. Yeah, I would say for me, it's made me better, right? I mean, I, I, it's like you say the tattoos. You know, in seven, eight, nine, for me, it was leverage. My basis was good. Every, I love my assets, but I was over levered. And, you know, when, when markets shift, people use leverage to try to get yield. And not Bill Cauley. <laughs> there was a day when I was, I was there, I would never do it. And just like that and Mez, you're like, I won't do Mez because I just think, I'd rather have the equity. I'm not going to juice returns with Mez because I think Mez is risk. But but that's just from having had been in that position and having difficult outcomes. Hey man, I, I'll never forget. This is years ago when you know I don't know what the environment and maybe you and I do this a lot. Teach a one-off class or something, and and you know there's you know some highfalutin, super super educated person more than me on Wall Street talking about positive leverage, and I said to him. Well, have you ever actually understood negative leverage? No, no, it's it's the, the tree doesn't always grow to the sky. And, and right. the, the beaut one of the beauties of getting old is you get lots of experiences, and those are helpful. Right. And so one of our jobs as leaders is to pass those on. Not like, oh, young stepper, you don't know. Just more, let me share what I went through. Right. And what I took from that, and you can do what you want with it. It's just, you, you haven't gone through it yet, so I'll share what happened to me. Right. Well, like. I would think like a lot of people that are going to listen to this podcast are going to be the young people getting, getting into the business or just getting started. And I remember when I was in my 20s and I would have somebody that was in their 50s telling me I am going to be successful. And I'm looking at the guy going, how the hell do you know that? I mean, because I just wanted to get there. So like if you were, what, would, what do you have to say to the, the people coming out of college or the young people in the business? I mean, what, what, what's, what's your view or what, you know, what, what advice would you have for them getting into the business today? You know, honestly, you and I talked about this. Uh, it's, I would say this to any young person, which is, uh, by the way, I'm a, a super fan of young people coming out. I think a lot of people kind of shit on millennials and I don't buy that at all. I think they're smart. I think they're authentic. I think they're, they're aspirational. Um, I agree. Fine. Um, uh, I, I think my thing is um, be willing to be a little bit patient as you're running up the totem pole to learn and to 
build a foundation. Um, I, you know, for me, the bank was a foundation. I built learning about businesses right. and how balance sheets work and how banks treat borrowers, treat lenders and, and right. how professional people go up in a business. And so even though I wasn't going to be a banker, it was a really valuable three years for me. And I think sometimes uh, uh, really smart young people are so aspirational. They don't want to necessarily go through the reps because they're ready. They think they're ready to go. And I think some of those reps, I always tell people, you know, sometimes if you put time in and you make, you know, one X less now, it'll be worth 10 X in five years. So, you know, put the reps in, learn the business right, learn from the right people. I'm, I'm really big on, I would tell somebody to go work for Bill Curley and learn about the business and make 10,000 less and then go work for some jerk and make 10,000 more because I think it's just going to be, you got to, you know, you get stink on you when you hang out with people that don't things do things right. And right. you got to learn how to do things right. It's a long, right. My, road. it's a very long road. You and I know that. Right. My advice to young people is, is get with somebody that cares about you. Right. But somebody that knows what they're doing, that cares about you. Don't worry about the money, build relationships and learn, just learn. It's like, it's like continuing to be in school. I mean, forget about the money. Just get in the right slot with the right people and learn. I am always like your first two to three years, your job is to be a sponge. Right. Just learn right. everything you can possibly learn. And by the way, and you were probably like this, I'm just wired this way. You know, I was the first in the office and last out because I don't want to miss anything. I just wanted to see everything I possibly see. One thing I learned in life, and it took me a little while to get there, but uh, the harder I worked, uh, the better I did. And it, it's about it's about effort. It just is. Okay. So we're in COVID. We're now nine or 10 months in to something we thought would take 90 days that now they're saying is probably going to go to midsummer next year. Nobody really knows, you know, what's your view of the future? What, I mean, what do you think about Dallas? What do you think next year is going to look like? What do you think the next two or three years are going to look like? What's your view? Yeah, we, we talk about it this way, Bill. We think there's kind of three gates you got to walk through to get to the other side. The first gate is the health gate. And, you know, until you get through that gate, nothing matters. And, and I agree with you. Second half of next year, somehow, some way, we'll be through the health gate. Right. Um, and then I think the second gate is the economic gate. And I actually think, you know, you know, technically a recession is two quarters of negative GDP growth, right? So we'll I think fourth quarter we will will be the end of the recession technically. Fourth um, quarter this year. Yes, but yes. I, but, okay. but I think you know second quarter next year will be better than first. Third will be better than second. I'm talking about the economy, not real estate right now. Right, uh, I agree with you. But but I think that is a very very slow recovery. I, I I would almost describe it as we're no longer going backwards, not we're really going forwards. Right. Um. But I think real estate's going to be tough next year on the demand side, particularly in, in office leasing. We're just, you know, we're in this environment where, you know, people are going to start. I do think people have been a little bit duped on the recession because they've been so focused on the health problem. And I think once that's gone, it'll be a little more glaring wherever businesses have problems. Um, and then I think the longer one, Bill, for uh, our business is what I'll call the behavioral change gate. And that is, you know, in all these parts of real estate, people are going to behave differently because of this forced, you know, lockup program, go virtual. And so I, I think that pendulum will swing a lot before people figure out what their new normal is. I think that's probably a two to three year gate for that pendulum swinging back and forth. It doesn't mean business is bad. I just think it'll, 
we won't know what new normal is for probably right. two to three years, really. Because right. lots of people are going to try lots of things. And um, But I, I, I'm super excited about the future because this is, you know, every cycle has a reset. This will reset. Um, you got to figure out what's the new things your customers need. And this, this technology has changed a lot of what our customers need. And I think the people that lean into it and say, I'm willing to change and adapt to help my customer are going to win big. And that's not Pollyannish. That's just what I believe. I agree with you. And let me ask you this. Do you think density is over? Do you think we ever go back to six or seven per thousand parking when the vaccine's here and COVID's in our, in our rear view mirror? Do you think, I mean, do you ever see it going back to the way it was before it hit? Or, I, I think it's going to go back a lot, but I still think it's not going to be the same. No, I mean, look, we, you know, in the last decade, we've gone from, I don't know, 250 to 275 square feet per person to 175. Yeah. And I would tell you before the pandemic, I think it was getting close to inhumane, right? right. And so I think even though we'll be, past, well, even though we'll be past the health thing, people will still have the tattoo memory of healthiness. And right. I think that density will, will go back out a little bit. It won't go anywhere near 275, but it may go to 200, 225 which will, may offset some of the work from anywhere stuff, although I still think there's some headwinds in the business. Okay, so you got several new buildings. You're talking Boston, you're uptown. You're, you're, I think, is your building designed in Plano? You're probably ready to go there, right? Ready to go. So what are you changing? I mean, and if, if there's stuff you don't want to talk about, that's great, but I mean, are you going back and changing some things about how that building is going to operate and or design that you would have done a year ago? Um, on the edges. So remember, yeah. you know, we were all building the next class A thing. So we were all right. to add the outdoor amenities already, which I think are important. The indoor outdoor work environment. Um, you know, I, let me say this as it, before I get into a little bit more about that. I, I think people are going to be happy to go to the gym and happy to sit in a lounge together and they're not going to be wearing masks. Right. So I agree. Cause it's, we're social creatures. Right. So I don't think a lobby needs to have partitions in it. I, I don't buy any of that stuff. So, I agree with that. But I do think we're going back in and making sure on the HVAC side, do we have the, the wellness and healthy things we need? Um, and, and so on the edges, for sure, we're making some changes, but I wouldn't say we're going back and redrawing the building. Right. Like, you know, the, they show pictures of people, four people at a table with plexiglass dividers. And I mean, oh my God, who the hell wants to do that? I think that's crazy. We're, you and I are the same. We're social animals. We always have been since the time people sat around a fire, right? Uh, you know, thousands of years ago. Right. And um, will people maybe be more cautious about how they do what they do? Yeah. But I mean, look at right now, and I don't think it's good. I think people are getting tired of masks and not going out and they're going out just because they're tired of being locked, cooped up. Right. Right. Okay. And so do you think that Dallas as a market, because you play in all market, a lot of different markets. I mean, don't you think Dallas is going to be a very attractive place? And do you think people are going to continue to leave places like New York and San Francisco and Chicago to go to environments like Texas and Atlanta and those kind of places? Uh, well, Dallas is a just an unbelievable market. It has been forever. It's just right. a, such an attractive place to do business and live for, for all the reasons we all know. So yes, I think Dallas will win big. You know this because, hell, you're always four steps in front of me. 
there, there's tons of clients in California and New York looking at places like Dallas and Atlanta and Nashville and, you know, kind of Southern, uh, low tax, low regulation places. So no question that's going on big. Um, I, I'm not certain about this, but I would tell you for sure the next two to three years, I feel like that will continue. Do I think San Francisco is going to fall into the ocean and people aren't going to want to be there? I don't buy it. It's a great, it's a great global city. Absolutely. It's got problems. California has problems. San Francisco governance has problems, homeless, all that stuff. They'll work through that. It's a great city, just like New York. Yeah. And I, it could take five years or more, but, but ultimately those places will survive and be fine. Yeah. I, I hope it takes them a while. <laughs> I think it will. I think it will I do take too. several years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because I've been spending some time in California and it's kind of amazing their approach to businesses. It's kind of a nuisance, right? And um, it's growth is bad. Where it's such a different mindset because in Texas, growth is good. Like if you want to come here and bring a bunch of people, come on. You know, we'll send a bus for you. Yeah. Where California, they're going, leave if you don't like it. Well, there's good news because, as you know, there were two propositions that just got voted down in, in California. Huge. The, the split tax roll where they were trying to tax commercial way more than residential got turned down. And then they had a um, eviction policy that they were trying. And so somehow the populace decided this is a little too much. And so right. that, that's a good sign. That's a good right. sign. Right. Well, um, I want to thank you. I mean, this has been like, you know, um, you and I kind of get together maybe once a quarter or whatever. And I always kind of, whenever I leave spending time with you, you know, I always go, God, we got to do that more often. You know, our lives are so hectic, but I, I just really value my friendship with you. And I appreciate, I think you have a lot to offer to, to the real estate industry you have. And um, I want to thank you for doing the podcast. And I want to thank you for your involvement in Trek and, and the way you give back. I mean. Um, I've been involved with you at Children's, and I just think uh, I love your heart. Well, I, I love you, Billy. Thanks for that. By the way, thank you for leading track to it during a really difficult time, and you guys pivoted and did an unbelievable job with all this virtual stuff, the weekly, the monthly calls with CEOs, and the or weekly, and the podcast, and all. You guys have really done a great job. And uh, what I love about you is I always say sun is always shining on Bill Cauley's side of the street. And that is a, that is a gift you have, my friend. Well, don't you, I mean, don't you actually though think life is, a, I think it's 90% attitude. I mean, it, you know, the, the, the bullets can be flying, but if you're thinking positive, somehow they're going to miss you, I think. Uh, well, as to my comment earlier, the human mind is a really, really powerful thing. And right. you, you have a good one. And I appreciate you. All right, man. I appreciate you. Thank right, you. Thank you. That's all for today. I'd like to thank Michael Dardick and Bill Cauley for their fantastic conversation as we wrap up another installment of our Legends of Commercial Real Estate series. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and follow Trek on social media. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.